0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome everyone. Thanks to Jerry over here, our program host who set up tonight and all the other people who helped him out. So uh, usually every few months, um, I instead of just launching into a talk, uh, in the series that I've been giving, we open it up see if people have some questions, and it's often really nice for people to raise any questions you have about the instructions, about what you're seeing both in your formal sitting practice or your daily life practice, and uh, it's not uh, Besides the particular response that might come out of the question or the comment, it's also nice for people just to hear from others about what they're noticing. It kind of normalizes the experience of having a mind, knowing that other people have a mind. (laughs) And although the content may be different, the patterns, the way the mind moves can be quite similar. So, any thoughts you'd like to bring up, any questions you'd like to bring up? (coughs) Yes, please. Bill his, was here on Sunday night and asked a question. Yeah, I think another question. I guess um, how do you deal know with
0: the idea of being alone or loneliness and you know, just to be at ease just with yourself and not being you know other things. You know, just to
1: be happy with oneself. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good question. And the way you ask the question I think is really a skillful way to ask it. Because we could say, you know, why am I lonely, or why is the world this way? <clears throat> but it, that's not—it's probably not the most skillful way to ask the question. But how to relate to loneliness? You know, how to be okay with loneliness is a more because then it kind of invites an exploration. Well, like, how do to do? I mean, how do we do that? How can one do that? What works? What doesn't work? In a way what you asked is the, you know, it's a a beautiful um, expression of the aspiration for our lives. Like how to be a human being with loneliness or with loss or with excitement and hopes and dreams and all the different aspects of our human condition. How to be there in that experience without suffering just to be okay with the different sort of flavors, emotional, mental flavors that we have. And uh, one thing, probably, all of us have insight, and this is not a trivial insight, but we all have some degree of insight that most of the ways of reacting to loneliness or to other kinds of strong mind states, emotional states, Aren't helpful so that 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 helps that alone helps because it kind of puts us in this uh, place of humility we and and I think a wholesome mistrust of our mental conditioning and uh, the combination of mistrusting like not just wanting to do the same old thing so when we have loneliness decide to go, you know, to the bar, or to the party, or to the, call up somebody, that maybe because we, we have a wholesome mistrust, we'll just sit and turn the mind toward the experience of loneliness. Well, what is this experience of loneliness? Can this be okay? I mean, the, to answer your question, like, how can we be okay with loneliness, this feeling of being apart? Well, we can get interested in it. I mean, that's, that's the basic answer. It's like, get interested in what it is. Instead of believing our habit energy that tells us this is bad, being lonely is bad, and we should do something about it, and here's what you should do. You know, And our culture, probably all cultures, human cultures, tell us what to do with loneliness. You know, We all get programmed about what to do with loneliness. You shouldn't be alone on a Friday night. Have you heard that? <laughs> it's true, by the way. <laughs> you might accidentally start meditating or something. <laughs> but there is a kind of a suspicion, you know, and if someone seems content it, li- living a simple life with some contentment, we become suspicious of them. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> what kind of drugs are they taking? <laughs> So the the first, I think the first part of practice with something like, uh, you know, noticing, first of all, it's just to appreciate that we're willing to own to ourselves that we do have these strong emotions, these regular visitors, all of us do, you know, the flavor may be different, like some people, it may be, the more frequent visitor may be loneliness, Uh, people like me, it might be more fear or anger, irritation, You know, other people, it's like uh, kind of more obsession about what they want, the next vacation, the next relationship, the next whatever. I always make fun of people who like kitchen items, because I'm one of those people, you know, the next special kind of vegetable peeler or vegetable chopper or (laughs) knives, you know. We can get obsessed about that, and not really content until we have the next next thing. So just to own that, and, and to have a wholesome respect, enough enough respect that we're willing to just hold it, you know, to be with it, to kind of know what it feels like to be lonely. Oh, it's like this. And to be unwilling, you know, based on our insight that all of our habits around it haven't been so useful, so then we're willing to, well, I'm willing to just feel this. I'm willing to be close to, to this. I'm willing to say yes to this. Not, that I would choose to be lonely, but being lonely, it seems skillful to say yes to it because I'm already lonely. Again, so it's not like um, we're becoming helpless because it's already this way. So it's actually a, a stance of fearlessness to say yes to it. Oh yeah, there's loneliness and it's like this. It feels like this in the heart, being lonely. And these thoughts tend to come up and when I start believing, when I get identified, taking that feeling, that pain in my heart personally, then these thoughts get very compelling. And when I have more wisdom in the mind, more space in the mind, then that pain of loneliness, that weight of loneliness is just the weight of loneliness. It's just this pain or just this sensation, you know, this emotional, physical sensation in the heart, in the body. And it's like this. And uh, we can develop quite a bit of um, confidence, even at that level. But that sort of experience, that confidence of just being with the pain, leads to a deeper insight, which is like uh, seeing how transparent that pain is. Like what gives that pain the feeling of real weight, real oomph, like it's about me, that's what I mean by oomph, like it feels like personal, it's really it's this loneliness is somehow defining me is, is our uh, inability to say yes to it completely. It kind of that resistance, that fear of it, that holding creates its reality in a way. So the more we make it a friend, the more we are quickly saying yes to it, of course and really seeing it as an old friend, an old friend because it's a regular visitor. You know, life, some of our friends, are they're not necessarily the people we would choose to be good friends, but because we grew up with them or because they're our neighbors or because we work with them or because they're best friends with a good friend, they become our friends. And it's the same with some of these emotional patterns. It's like we wouldn't choose, I would never choose to be a thir- fearful person, but I am a fearful person. So it's good for me to see it as a, that tendency of my mind, that condition of my mind, to see it as a friend. Because then that relaxes that resistance. And then the fear or the loneliness or whatever it is, it's just a movement of emotion, a movement of the mind. It's not much of anything unless we resist it. And so it becomes more and more transparent. The more familiar we are with it, the, the less we resist it. The more we, in a sense, see through it, we see space through it. And so then it's less and less of a problem. It actually doesn't weigh the heart down. So it's almost in those moments, it's not even... We might have a sense that there's loneliness, like the a, a sort of the flavor of loneliness, but it's almost like a, a porous or a, just a shadow of its former self. So we wouldn't. It wouldn't be right to say it's painful or it's a problem. It's still there, you know. And the tendency to be diluted by it is still there. So as soon as the mindfulness wavers, we can be as diluted as we were 20 years ago, you know. In it. But as long as the mindfulness is strong, meaning that the mind is seeing things as they are, it's just this emotion. It's just this feeling in the heart. It's just these thoughts associated with the feeling in the heart, and not confused by it. It's like there's a lot of space with that sort of shadowy, sort of formally solid, but now shadowy, light, porous, transparent emotional state. But all of that happens, that insight and that freedom that comes from insight, that all happens by doing the opposite of what we're trained to do or we're conditioned to do, which is to run from it or to try to fix it. So whether we run away from the loneliness or we run toward it in our attack mode like to fix it i'm tired of being i'm not i refuse to be a lonely person anymore you know those strategies tend to actually make it stronger because we wouldn't have to fight something unless it were real and we wouldn't have to run from something unless it was was, real the way we uh, expose its insubstantiality is we turn toward it and we say yes yes, this This is how it is. Welcome. But it's a gradual process because even when we start doing that, the mind kind of has some confidence and it kind of doesn't believe that this is going to work. And so we have to do it until we know in our bones. We've done it enough and we've said yes to it enough and we've sat with it enough and moved with it enough and lived our life with it enough and had enough Friday nights with it, you know, that we really know it's okay. It isn't going to kill us. It isn't actually a problem at all. And the way we get to know our regular visitors is we have a daily sitting practice or we go on retreats because that's what happens when you sit, you know, for periods of time, is when you're not having states of beautiful bliss and calm, you're looking at your regular visitors. I mean, that's what happens. And so it's usually one or the other. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Paul.
2: Well, this might be uh, one of the imponderables. Impom- <laughs> well, I apologize ahead of time. But uh, I was reading this book by Natalie Goldberg. And in the book, she asked her teacher, uh, Kategori Roshi, uh, if elm trees suffer. And Kategori Roshi answers her, but she didn't understand. So she asked him again. And he answered, and she didn't understand. So she asked him again, and he she told her to shut up. <laughs> and she's like, "Okay, I got that." <laughs> but um, you know, I was looking at my dog, and uh, we we're just thinking about animals and how uh, you know they experience pain, of course, and some even grief for a short period of time. You know, like elephants, or um, so I was just wondering. Without the conceptual mind, I mean, is there suffering? Without language, mm-hmm. is there suffering? Because most of our suffering comes from thoughts, it comes from memory, it comes from concepts, it comes from a sort of comprehension it's of understanding suffering. But you know, our dogs and cats, they seem pretty happy. Yeah.
1: Okay. I, I normally wouldn't answer something like this, but I, I, there may be something instructive here. We'll see. And, uh, you know, generally speculation is, uh, is is a bit dangerous because we begin to believe our speculations and then we have opinion wars. You know, one person's speculation versus another. But here's just one way to, to hold it. And... And actually the way to answer it is instead of talking about dogs is just to talk about our mind in different places because sometimes our mind is very much like a dog's mind. You know, we're, we're really operating with our animal instincts mostly and don't and really have sort of the higher functionings that we normally associate with the human being, human being's mind. So the basic response would be, because a being doesn't know it's suffering, doesn't mean the being isn't suffering. So what we might notice when we see other human beings living a primitive existence, you know, like, give me the Friday so I can go to the bar and get drunk, you know, and have a day and a half to sober up. And, you know, then earn enough money to get drunk on Friday night or, you know, whatever. Or... And, you know you just sort of any stereotypic superficial life so that's just one example another person's another example of a superficial life is someone totally obsessed with shopping or totally obsessed with their body and their perfection of their body or totally obsessed with you can name any number of things and from our you know wise perspective we might think oh you know how stupid of them but and because we intuitively understand that even though they may be fine with what they're doing, I mean, in a sense they are, because they're choosing to do what they do, we might have a sense that they're suffering, even though they may not be conscious of the the fact that they're suffering. So, for example, I have uh, Win and I have a cat, Sumi. Many of you know Sumi because she was walking around at the old center, and. uh You know, I I observe Sumi a lot and uh, one of the things I observe about Sumi is that, you know, when she's hungry, she can't, it's not easy for her to have space around the hunger. You know, her mind gets (laughs) shaped by that desire to have food. And Being dependent on a meal coming or being dependent on the idea of being fed is suffering, it's a kind of suffering. Any time the heart or mind, whatever you want to call it, is contained, is defined, is uh, bounded or bound up in some way, means that the natural freedom or space of the mind is constricted or restricted. And so what seems to be possible for human beings is that we can be conscious of a restricted, constricted mind, right? Most of us in this room have had moments of real clarity of what it's like to have a constricted mind. That's a big step. There are a lot of human beings, because their lives are so overwhelming, because they haven't then offered this perspective, this kind of way of uh, reflecting on their lives, they have really constricted, bound-up minds or hearts, but they're not aware that the heart or mind is bound up. So one of the first advantages of having uh, not being completely overwhelmed by pain or poverty or injustice or one thing or another um, as a human being is that we can have this insight that this heart, this mind, is bound up. Now, you see, just having that insight means we now understand that there's this possibility of it not being so bound up. We don't even need to imagine the nth degree of being fully enlightened, you know. But just the fact that we can imagine our mind being less bound up, and if it can be even less bound up, could it be even less, less bound up? Or can it be completely unbound? And this is what we mean by the space of the mind, a mind that's unbound, unbound by the conditioning, unbound by the conditions of the present moment. So our heart or mind is unbound by this particular container we find ourselves in, being in a human body, being in the situation as a 50-year-old guy who has these responsibilities, this kind of mental programming, to be, un- um, uh, can the heart or mind in moments be experience a a sort of a freedom in with these conditions unbound with these conditions i'm not sure animals can my my guess would be that what they mostly experience is the happiness of being ignorant of their bound up state so uh and so (coughs) In terms of spiritual, the path, which is, some of you are signed up for the workshop on Saturday, we're talking about path. You know, the path is really to go from seemingly, the the seeming bliss of ignorance, which is not really blissful, but it seems blissful because as we start to wake up, we notice what's really going on. We notice how often the mind or heart is bound up, is tight, is weighed down. And we might want to run back, but generally, once you've sort of stepped through that door, you kind of don't want to go back, even though it can seem like, God, I wish I never had started this. I wish I never realized how messed up my mind is, how clinging my mind is, how much fear there is, how much loneliness there is. So I think animals are basically operating with greed, anger, and delusion. But they're just not... Necessarily conscious of the consequences of being bound up by greed, anger, and delusion. The delusion being not understanding that they're bound up. That's what delusion really means. They don't realize the bound up state. They don't realize that their lives are defined by greed and aversion. Uh, the, The mental experience is defined by that. A good question, Paul.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: say your name again. I forgot. Hey. Stacy.
0: So, as you become aware of what you're
2: talking about and become more and more aware, then of let's say a loved one who is very much bound up, mm-hmm. and you have a lot of concern um, about that, and you're probably even more concerned about even thinking about scratching the surface. Um,
1: more concerned about
0: scratching the surface with them like bringing it up, Help,
1: yeah. Oh, okay. Um
2: thoughts on like how if you're grappling with that it Yeah. And and it's a, a very close loved one in my case who yeah. it is going to come to the end of
1: their life and that's how it will have been. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, because we all have either intimate partners or good friends or family members and uh and one of the ways, one of the, probably the regular ways we perpetuate suffering, is we unskillfully relate to the suffering around us. And this just is what causes like the endlessness of suffering. So we really do want to get skillful. And, you know, so we, we may realize that we're creating more suffering, so then we think, oh, I need to, I need to uh, distance myself. Well, that's their business, you know, and it's like detachment feels like the appropriate strategy, but that's not that's not really the appropriate strategy so <clears throat> there's a there's a principle that gets repeated over and over in practice, which is the place to practice is always with her own heart. And this is always true. So it doesn't mean if you're a teacher teaching a bunch of children. And, uh, you're, something feels off, like you're having a bad day as a teacher. The first place to start is to deal with your own heart. You know, instead of thinking, I gotta, you know, I know this is hard, because when you're in a, when you're out in the world and you got a job to do, you immediately, and, and something feels off, you immediately feel like you gotta deal with the mess out there in the world, in your life situation. But in terms of Buddhist practice, the place we always start is, with our heart, with the mind, as it is right then and there. So when you're aware, whether you're with the person or not, like even here, being aware of the person, having the thoughts about the person, and the thoughts about their suffering, notice what's going on in your heart right now. Like, are you afraid of their suffering? Then can you welcome that fear? Can you turn toward that fear? Because a lot of what we want to do in terms of scratching the surface with them, to use your words, it's really our own wanting to avoid that yucky feeling that we have. So first we have to make peace with the yucky feeling we have when we're around that person suffering or thinking about that person suffering. We have to make peace with that feeling. We have to learn how to be skillful with that feeling before we're going to even have a chance of being... Uh, skillful with them like actually relating to them in a way that's going to be useful and don't under, underestimate the power of being intimate with another human b- being who's in a deep state of suffering without having a clue what you can do about it but just the willingness to show up, or just the willingness not to be afraid of the mess of their life Because if we go there to fix them, even in a subtle way, you know, so subtle we don't realize that's what we're trying to do, we're basically uh, reinforcing any tendency in them to hate themselves. Because we're afraid of who they are, of what they are, what they're expressing. And our attempt to fix them is basically saying, you should be afraid too. And that's taking them down the wrong road because the only way they're going to address their suffering is by waking up. And waking up means saying yes. So we can model saying yes. It's easier for us because it's not our life. and Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't actually know that. But, you know, we can model what they have to do by being willing to be intimate with their pain, just like they need to be intimate with their pain, and, and to be patient with it. And to be so intimate that we're not depending on it going away. Like we we have enough space, enough wisdom, that this person could stay, quote-unquote, stuck in their stuff their whole life and die with it a miserable death. But we would still be able to be intimate with them and to love them. I mean, that's obviously a tall order. Uh But I work on that, you know, I work on that with my partner. I mean, one of the things about having an intimate partner is we see, you know, they're a human being and they suffer. And they've got their own sort of shadow side, just like I do, like we all do. Except we get to, in some ways, with our people we're really close to, we can see kind of what they're not seeing in a way. And uh, it seems like we should point it out to them. But whenever I look, it's always because I don't want to feel what I'm feeling. But it masquerades as compassion. But it isn't compassion. It's a kind of aversion
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and fear. Thanks, Stacey. Anything else? Yeah. Uh,
0: I'd like to say more about that because I was with someone this weekend, (coughs) or last weekend. And I came away from that experience with bad feelings about me, right? And so I sat with that a little bit and I more or less got over it. But I still, I, I don't know how to be skillful in that way. I mean, because when I talked about it with somebody else, then the message I got was that I should be kind of fix fixer. Oh, and I actually don't know how to take care of myself with her yeah. so I, I
1: love her you know, I
2: mean, she's mm-hmm. a wonderful
1: person yeah, <laughs> <Something>. yeah. <laughs> well first of all there, w- there will be people at times that who we love dearly but we can't be around in a skillful way and, and then it's just a question of whether karmically we have to be with them anyway because they're our partner or they're our kid or child or our boss or, you know what I mean? But there may be people that um, that push our buttons, so to speak, that we just don't have enough skill to be skillful with them. And that's just how it is. And so what we do is we work with them at some distance. Now, we still show up and make a mess every day. But when we're not there, we we bring them to mind where it's safer, you know, in the safety of our bedroom, in the safety of our home, in the safety of common ground. We bring them to mind, and when we bring them to mind, we notice what gets triggered. And, it, and like when you sit, you don't even need to, need to bring them to mind. They'll come to mind. And then, But when they come to mind, instead of trying to fix or trying to figure out what I should do or what I should say, instead... We do. We meditate, which is we're meditating on the space of the heart. We're meditating on what's getting activated in the body and mind, here in this body and mind right now. And we're learning to say yes to it. I get it. I get it. So
0: instead of reacting to her that way, I would meditate on it and next time not
1: react that way? Yeah, you're basically practicing not reacting to her from a distance. Yeah. Yes, and this is the great thing about having the capacity to imagine. So when we imagine somebody, it's a little bit like being with the person. And the same kind of things will get triggered as we imagine somebody as will when we're actually there with them. And then we get to practice being skillful, peacefully coexisting with who they are, with the kind of things that they trigger in us. Peacefully coexisting, being willing to say yes to everything so we're not sort of reacting in habitual ways. And when we get good doing it from a distance, then we get better when it happens. But to understand that it may be a really long process. And also that we can really train with easier people. So, like, you may, in this lifetime with a particular person, you may never be perfectly skillful with them. And that just may be how it is, you know. But uh, there are some people you can become very skillful with. And basically, you can be an enlightened being with them, meaning you're. You're able to say yes to everything that arises in you when you're around that person and therefore you're able to say yes to whoever they are as they are and you can have a free relationship with them and your way of relating to them will be more more or less spontaneous and creative and marked by love and tenderness and joy as opposed to fear and all the rest. Mm Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, Tom, and then Sherry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Um,
0: I was at a, a workshop this weekend, the whole pandemic was weekend on alternatives violence. It was held at the uh, Confederation of and uh, one of the things that I took from that that I was going to try to news um, in my life, in my everyday life, and I'd heard it before, but I certainly I never really tried to practice it, was uh, when you're in conflict with someone, uh, you say, when you do this, I feel this way, because, and then offer a suggestion of how they may do it differently the next time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm wondering how, is that, uh, is that, the, is that the way a Buddhist way <laughs>
1: Well, you know you know, the way a Buddhist handles things is where the Buddha really focuses on the sort of foundational work, and the skillful means really flow from that foundational work. So the, the, the Buddhist practices really emphasize what allows you to do that. Like in order for me to say, uh, when you raise your voice, I feel frightened and I want to retreat so I'd like to ask when you're with me Tom for you not to raise your voice so for, for me to be able to speak clearly about a particular pattern between us in a way that doesn't cause is less likely to cause you to react means that I have uh, I have a lot of, I have a balanced mind in that situation so I can actually notice that when I'm with you, I get afraid, you know. And then as I'm sitting there with you over and over again and noticing this fear, I can notice the chain of cause and effect. Oh yeah, loud voice, wave of fear. Loud voice, wave of fear. Quiet voice, no wave of fear. And then, you know, so then it just just being mindful, I see, oh, when I was young, my dad had such a loud voice, and I always cowered in the corner, you know, so maybe you figure out even why it's happening, not that you need to even know these things, but all of a sudden it just gets clearer what's going on. And then, instead of out of habit just blaming you, like, you know, why are you so angry? You know, so I'm sort of putting it on you. I'm kind of owning that when I hear a loud voice, I get frightened. When I see this, when I experience this, I get frightened and then I'm quiet, you know, and then you get angry at me, you you speak up louder because you think I'm not listening and, you know, this is why marriages break up. So if we can own our part, so the basic strategy, it sounds like you were taught, is to use an I statement. So instead of, like, putting the problem out there on you, you own that, I feel, I see, I hear, this is what you know. This is what's going on here, and then if you have some clarity, you can ask for something from the person. Would you would you be able to do? This would be helpful if you would. But all that, those the trouble with a lot of those strategies that are taught out in the world, and the, and I think generally the ones I've seen, you know, like nonviolent communication and other conflict resolution uh, practices. They really depend on clarity. Like the technique is no good if there isn't a real spacious, balanced mind sort of getting what's going on. So then then the technique is very useful. But otherwise, it, uh, it generally, I don't think, works very well. So I think that probably would be the connection.
0: So it's, it's an appropriate way to do it. Uh, yeah. Jim, yeah. Uh, rather than just to say
3: something like,
1: well, that's the way this person is. And mm-hmm. let them handle their own business. Yeah, so when I, you know, I worked as a behavior specialist in the Minneapolis School District uh, back in the 90s, and uh, um, often, you know, the first thing I would train children, and often kids that are having behavior problems, they they don't really, they, don't, they have very little emotional fluency. They don't understand what they're feeling. So the first thing is just like to put them in a safe place and, and ask them, well, what are you feeling? Now, they've been really bad. They're expecting to get punished, you know, because they've been bad. But there you are, you're teaching them to get clear about what they're actually feeling. You know, I'm angry. You know, and then, and then you try to get them to see cause and effect. Well, where did that anger come from? You know, what happened? Oh, this happened. Then, and then, you, then you, then you train them with the technique. You know, once they're calmed down, that you, you teach them to own the anger. Like uh, when you did this, or actually, that's not the correct way to say it. It's like I feel angry. I'm angry because, little bit like you described. You know, because um, I saw this or I heard this, I felt this. You know, and then I got angry. I wanted to get my thing back. Or, So this is exactly what we do with human beings. We teach them to kind of, uh, it's like basic wisdom to understand cause and effect and to understand that suffering is here and that understanding this, understanding how the mind, how the heart is, helps us in our life situation. If we go first to the life situation without understanding what's going on here, mostly we we miss the point. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Jerry, what's your thought?
2: It's uh, not hard at all for me to come here and sit for a half hour or even an hour, but sitting at home and it's just nearly
0: impossible. For, I can do a part for 20 minutes. Any suggestions
1: to? So. <coughs> well, keep coming here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> or someplace like, like Common Ground.
1: <laughs> in, uh, in a kind of humility that. Uh, that that this is a difficult practice, you know. It's not easy to sit still. It's not easy to give up being the doer, you know. It's not easy to let go of all the things that seem important, even though in hindsight they're so silly, you know, what we'd be doing, like reading the news that we just read 45 minutes ago, you know, and there we are again when we're done meditating. I mean, it's not like I mean we may have important things to do but we don't do it usually, (laughs) if you're like me. So uh, just have a deep respect for our devotion to distraction and uh, kind of wanting to bury our head in sand in one way or another, you know, we all have our different ways and a lot of the ways we bury our head in sand is we do what we think think is an important thing but with some perspective we realize it's just a way of avoiding feeling what we're feeling, knowing what we know, being present. So I like to think of it as the hardest thing in the world what we do. So then it doesn't surprise me. You can do what I did. You can start a meditation center and become the guiding teacher, and then you have to sit a lot because <laughs> it's really, you know, hard on your pride. If you don't sit a lot, you know. Cause, People might think you're a fraud or something.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can tell people you're going to sit a lot, you know, you got all your friends, and then they're going to ask you what did you sit. And then your pride will say, "No, but I will before I go to bed tonight." And then they're going, you know, they're going to ask you tomorrow, so you better. Really, so there are gimmicks like that where you kind of uh, make a commitment. You know, you become a monk or a nun or. You do something, you put yourself in a container, you go on a retreat um, in a way where it would be embarrassing not to show up for most of the sits. That's what people do. And eventually it does become, it, I'm not sure it becomes really easier, but it just becomes something that we do. It becomes kind of part of our, you know, like we brush our teeth or we feel a little naked when we don't do it. And there are periods of times when we really enjoy it, you know. We look forward to it. But uh, if we're really <clears throat> doing good practice, it's it's regularly difficult to sit. But it it uh, it's the kind of thing that feels good when we're done. And so that's a nice reason to not rush when you're done sitting, but to just take a time it, you know, with your schedule so that you don't have to get up immediately and leave but you have at least a couple minutes just to hang up, to so stretch up your leg. It's even okay to lie down for a few minutes after a sit and then just appreciate the sort of effect of having done the practice because even if the sit itself was really unpleasant and it took everything you had to stay there on the cushion, it will still feel good at the end. At least that, that's my sense of it. Do. Yeah, does.
0: I had the same problem. One trick I use is I use some CD meditation music, or I got a meditation so I feel like someone's there with me. Yeah. Um, that seems to get a little, a little bit
1: further into it. Yeah. Yeah, get your friend or partner, anybody you live with. But creating community is really, really what allows us to do it. I don't know too many people that have enough motivation that without a community of some sort they're going to stick with the practice for long. I think it's pretty unlikely. And we're pretty fortunate to have uh, as many communities in the city as we have that people can tap into. You know, not too many people are as fortunate. Yeah.
3: So, um, it seems like my mind reaches stressful patterns when I forced to make a decision sometimes and what it'll do is run through scenario A and then run through scenario B and sort out the pros and cons of both and <coughs> imagine what's going to happen and then I usually put off making the decision as long as possible and you know that's just kind of stressful back and forth at times And what happens, like, after that time has passed and I find myself along one of those paths, sometimes I feel regret, and that's when I catch myself and say, you know, I shouldn't be regretful, this is wonderful right here. I know this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that kind of sobers me off and puts me in place, but rarely um, does that happen before the fact. Well, I'm flipping back and
1: forth trying to make a decision. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a very good description of what the Buddha calls dukkha. When we take our life personally, then every choice becomes important and serious because it has consequences from a self-centered point of view. When we imagine that we're in a driver's seat, then if we go left, it has consequences. Everything that's going to flow will flow from that left-hand turn. You know, everything that comes next will uh, arise out of having taken a left as opposed to a right. But all that depends on a real self-centered point of view. And uh, the whole point of practicing is to have experiences or insights that undermine that view of things, that perspective on things. So. In the meantime, I mean, so the the real answer is to do the practice, to just keep paying attention, including paying attention to when you're struggling with the choice. And to see three things in everything. To see that things come and go, that because of the sort of coming and go nature of things, it's unsatisfying and it's all impersonal, it's all conditional. So it's really good to see in decision-making processes, processes that these things that it's uh, you can't figure it out. You can't know all the different permutations, all the different possibilities. There's no way to figure it out whether you should marry this person or wait, whether you should go to grad school or not, whether you should have a hamburger or become a vegetarian, whether you should, you know, there's just no way to figure it out. For, for a while, quite a long time, um, I resorted to flipping a coin. I, first of all, I, would, I, would, I did this very seriously uh, where I would get to, to a place where I really understood that I didn't know and that I'd be, I'm really going to do whatever the coin says. Like I, I did what you did, you know, I kind of figure out uh, like if I do this, this could happen, pros and cons, all that kind of stuff. And all I was doing is getting my heart all tight, wrapped up. So I would flip a coin and I would just do what it said. And it's like uh, just appreciating that life is not something to be figured out. If, you, if we take that strategy for, through life to figure everything out, boy, that is hell. You know, because then every choice becomes quite traumatic if we think it matters in terms of happiness. But the whole aspiration behind what the Buddha taught is that the happiness is unconditional. It's not about the conditions. It's not about how our life unfolds. It's not about the particular conditions. It's inherent. The freedom is inherent. That as long as we feel everything we do is important, we're we're moving in this very narrow space, And it becomes sort of self-fulfilling. So we want to, in that space of having a choice, we want to understand the limitations of our human existence. And trying to make something that's that's, uh, ephemeral, that's insubstantial, that's constantly in motion, so many causes and conditions at play, trying to make it, Something that's kind of figure outable is health. So but we see that it's we see the limitations of trying to figure it out. We see the dukkha and, and trying to figure it out. We see how it's all conditional anyway. And there's and we begin to kind of have this intuitive sense that that letting go is the happiness we're seeking anyway. I mean, we're seeking to make the right choice because we want to be happy. But we realize that not taking it all personally already provides the happiness that I'm aspiring to. You know, just letting our, letting our lives sort of be like the water that finds its way from the top of the mountain to the ocean. It doesn't have to think about every twist and turn. There's sort of a natural process happening and we can kind of have that image in our life. Well, this will be interesting. You know, when a new choice comes up, we lose our job. And, uh, and then we've got to find something else to do with our lives, our life. And, and then it, it, the, we can have the reflection, well, this will be interesting. Like, I'm really, get, honestly, going to be interested to see, you know, the, the causes and conditions, the different sort of habit tene- tendencies, to see how it all kind of unfolds. What will get triggered? Oh, look at this fear getting triggered. Oh, this is interesting, you know, or this hope. Oh, this is interesting, this possibility. Oh, this is interesting, we'll see how this unfolds. And not to feel like we have the right, we could ever have the right idea of how it should unfold. That takes a lot of faith. But that's, I think that's the direction of practice, that confidence or faith. We don't have a lot of time, Paul, but if you have a comment or... No? Yeah, real quick, Rebecca. Oh,
0: um, well, you know, I mean, I've shared this before. Um, I, am, I I'm into a lot of different things, like I'm in a 12-step program, and there's this church I really like. And I'm trying, you know, this, you know, doing mm-hmm. this, and I'm trying to kind of find my way with various things and um, what works or or what seems to be right for me, and perhaps an integration of all of them or whatever. But I have been considering going on like. Um, you know, I should talk about, like, a sit, you know, some sort of like a silent thing. And But but I could just picture that being, like, one big um, fantasy thing where I'm just off into my mind and then, you know what I mean, into some fantasy world just kind of mm-hmm. sitting there and then playing a videotape all day of, uh, you know, like, oh, and how I would react and Listen, and then standing up to this person being angry, or, you know what I mean, that kind of stuff. I'm thinking, gosh, you know, that sounds kind of horrifying. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know, you know, like sort of...
1: No, we, a lot of us (laughs) know, it is horrifying, because (laughs) you've been on retreats, and this happened.
0: So it's like, I mean, that's the kind of stuff I'm like trying (laughs) to stop, within myself, and then coming, and then just sort of like...
1: Yeah, but the question is, what is the way to stop that? And sometimes the way to stop that is to really see how painful it is. Unfortunately... That seems to be what works for most of us, is we have that quiet. We go on a meditation retreat, for example, and we see in living color the obsessive tendencies of the mind in a way that we don't notice in daily life because our obsessive tendencies get interrupted, you know, because there's something interesting on the radio. And all of a sudden, we're picked out of our drama, and now we're in another drama. And see, in daily life, our dramas keep getting interrupted, so we don't realize how oppressive they are when we're in a more quiet environment like on a meditation retreat there are fewer interruptions and so those obsessive tendencies are seen to be as heavy as they actually are and in seeing more clearly how heavy and unskillful they are we get motivated to find another way to work with the mind Yeah. let's uh, leave it here take a couple moments to let go of the words It's always nice to reflect with gratitude on this opportunity to be together and all of the wonderful human beings that have done the practice before us all the way back to the Buddha and even the Buddha's teachers, just to be grateful that this wisdom stream has been passed down people doing exactly what we're trying to do, which is to integrate the practice into our lives, to become more mindful and wise and loving, so we can aspire to be a cause for happiness and peace and freedom from suffering in the world, for ourselves and for all beings without exception. Thanks again, everyone, for coming.